Go ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director at EAA, and today I am your only host as we are joined by not one, not two, not three, not four, but five guests. I think this is the most guests we've ever had on the show. Um, We have a real treat. This is a multi-generational panel of uh, crews from all three of the U.S. Air Force's major gunship platforms um, that have uh, served across um, uh, Vietnam and into the uh, into the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so I'm just going to, we, we have the table today uh, set up uh, quite in quite an interesting fashion. We almost got it here like the U.N. So I'm just going to go down the table and, uh, and have all of you uh, introduce yourselves. So we want to start here. I'm Junior Skinner with the AC-47 gunship in Vietnam, which he forgot to mention. <laughs> I'm, I'm John Bonner, pilot, AC-47, Laos, uh, 69 and 70, but they said we weren't there. <laughs> I'm uh, Major Ryan Wickman, uh, instructor pilot at the uh, 4th SOS active duty currently, flew on the AC-130U uh, in uh Afghanistan and uh, and then uh, Middle East and then uh, currently flying the AC-130J. I'm Clay Tenike, five years on AC-138 Spectre and then five years on AC-130U Spooky. Uh, deployments Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan and now flying in the Air Force Reserve. I'm Terry Cerule. I was uh, with the 18th SOS, a gunner on the AC-119K Stinger gunship in Vietnam, uh, end of 1971 all through 1972. So the C forty seven, the C one nineteen, and the uh, and the AC or excuse me, AC forty seven, AC one nineteen, and AC one thirty. The uh, the the three uh, three major platforms that the uh, that that the Air Force has uh, has used across the years. And I guess we should maybe start with the uh, with the history of those aircraft. Um, I, you know, I guess you could say that the that the gunship concept traces its uh, roots back to uh, back to World War Two, um, and aircraft like the upgunned B twenty fives and things like that. Does anybody have a um, little window into the history that uh, m- might get us started with that. Go ahead, John. Uh, the concept of the side-firing gunship happened almost by accident. A fighter pilot on attaché duty down in South America was out observing, which is what attachés do. And uh, a mail delivery was uh, about to happen in a remote village. The plane uh, uh, flies in uh, low in an open area, enters an orbit. And uh, the pilot feeds out a bucket on a rope as the pilot uh, orbits. And in the, on the rope is a bucket with the mail, and it feeds out. And as he orbits, that bucket stays in the same place over the ground. Somebody reaches in, gets the mail, puts in the outbound mail, the bucket's retrieved, and away he goes. And, and uh, this fighter pilot is watching this thinking, what? if that rope was a gun and the idea uh, is conceived and it took some time to do it, but that, that is how the gunship concept started. So, so the idea of, of basically firing off the side and doing a, uh, doing a pylon turn. um, So that was, that was a concept that's, that's interesting. That was actually a concept of mail delivery and, uh, and obviously it's a little bit, uh, maybe the opposite of a mail delivery when, uh, when you're, when you're firing, uh, 
quite a bit of ordinance out the side, but, but yeah. Um, so when, uh, what was the first test with that concept? Um, I think uh, Chris was saying it was, uh, it, it was Converse uh, to, to start off with, and then, then they moved to the C-47? Yeah. The uh, uh, Air Force Weapons Lab in Florida had a, had a Converse, so it was, it was the test article for the concept and worked fine. They tweaked with guns. A 50 caliber didn't quite do it. And here comes General Electric with the 7.62 minigun. And at uh, a rate of incredible rate of fire of 50 to 100 rounds per second, that did it in, in their test on, on an old Convair 240, 340. But they didn't have airframes to devote to the, uh, to the concept. And interestingly, they had C-47s left over from World War II by the hundreds. And so they uh, outfitted the, the Goonie Bird with uh, 50s. Didn't quite work. Here comes General Electric with the 7.62 minigun, and it worked just fine. They take five airplanes over to uh, do combat uh, operational tests and evaluation. And uh, the first thing they, they learned was... This was not a daylight weapon system. They lost lost the, uh, an airplane right away trying to uh, do ground attack in the daylight. At night, uh, the uh, enemy just couldn't see it well enough. Uh, infrared weapons uh, hadn't come out yet. And uh, in the night uh, application, deadly and successful overnight, the... Uh, Theater commander says, I want 50 of those airplanes in country right now. Well, he got 35. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, program is evolving back at the weapons lab in Florida. AC-119 is coming along with uh, more guns and longer uh, loiter and all the uh, advantages of uh, a bigger airplane. In order to get that... Uh, C-47 to Vietnam, by the way, they didn't have uh, large enough fuel tanks to make the flight across the ocean. So they mounted 500-gallon bladder tanks in the belly of this thing and filled them up with fuel to where they could ferry it to Vietnam. And, of course, then they took the uh, bladder tanks out of the belly of the aircraft and uh, had the miniguns, as John mentioned. And at night, since we flew night, we dropped flares to where the pilot could see the ground. It would light up the ground. They were 2 million candlewatt uh, power flares. And the pilot could see the ground and see where he was shooting. So the, these, um, and it continues to be today, the, these aircraft have basically had their genesis as, as cargo aircraft, you know, as, um, uh, as flying uh, uh, logistics. And suddenly they're now a tactical uh, combat asset, basically. Um, I, I want to ask all, all five of you, how did you get into um, the gunship capacity? Where, what, where did you kind of start that and come from? Were you flying uh, the, you know, the, the 
I guess, slick versions of those aircraft, the cargo versions of that aircraft before? Um, did you go directly into the gunships? Kind of um, what, what was your uh, what was your progression into the uh, in, into that community? And I'll start with you, Terry, as a as a crew chief. I think that's that's an interesting perspective. Well, it's junior, but <laughs> sorry, <laughs> five. I'm sorry. There's five of you, and I I am so horrible with names. I do have a cheat sheet, and I'm still getting it wrong. I apologize. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> Once I got out of training, I was stationed at Travis Air Force Base in a uh, phase dock, and I got orders for Vietnam, and I, of course, I'm 20 years old, young, scared. And I, so, But anyhow, when I got there, they said, hey, you're going to be uh, working on a AC-47. And so they put me in a phase dock over there for five months. Then they put me down to Ben Tui, uh, and I became a crew chief down there on them. And John, how about you? Uh, straight out of the T-38 in flight school to the AC-47. Uh, almost all the uh, class was getting Vietnam assignments. We had five fighters. I wasn't going to get one of those. And there's this this thing called AC-40. What in the heck is that? Oh, it's got guns. <laughs> I took it. <laughs> and so I go from... Uh, supersonic T-38 trainer to this uh, World War II piece of crap airplane, but it's got <laughs> guns on it, and in 40 years of flying, is the most fun thing I ever did in an airplane. Right? Yep. So 9-11, um, obviously I was in 6th, 7th grade, so that had a pretty big impact on uh, me growing up, and um, so for for that, that's why I wanted the gunship. I actually told my flight commander that in T6s, and he's he thought I was a little actually thought I was a little weird. I think for wanting a gunship right out the bat, um, just because I wanted to take the fight back to the enemy. And uh, believe it or not, I didn't actually drop um, AC-130s right out of pilot training. I dropped MC-130 Shadows Papas, uh, but they were retiring. So a couple of weeks after drop night, I actually got told, "Hey, you lost your airplane. Come back in and redrop." Um, as luck would have it, there were two gunships on there and two MC-130s and an EC-130. So my racket stack changed dramatically to gunships to Hurlburt, gunships to Cannon, MC-130s and an EC. And uh, got lucky, ended up dropping the U-model that I wanted, and uh, off to Hurlburt I went. Wow. Clay? Yeah, for me, uh, when I was cadet, we got to do a, a squadron trip down to Albuquerque, and uh, it was my first exposure to special operations aviation. We got to fly low levels through the mountains of New Mexico on an MC-130. Then we got to do an infill with MH-53s at nighttime, and I said, man, I want to be in special operations. And uh, at the time, there was a pilot and a gunner that were up at the academy teaching, and I started talking to them, and they said, well, you know, the helicopters are great, MCs are great, but, uh, you know, they bring everybody in, and then they head out. If you want to be there while the mission's going down, the gunship is where you want to be at. And uh, I thought about all the planes in the Air Force. I said, well, I want to be somewhere on the front lines, you know, being a, a child of the 9-11 generation myself. I'd like a big crew, a big airplane, something where I can work with a lot of enlisted folks uh, and actually take care of the guys on the ground. And so for me, AC-130s were number one pretty early on. Um, didn't think I'd get it out of pilot training. Worked hard, was lucky enough, uh, got the AC-130H Spectre right out of pilot training. Uh, and it really couldn't have been a better airplane for a new lieutenant and a better squadron. And it was small, eight airplanes, uh, a lot of great aviation experience and, and good mentors to help me grow as, a, as an AFSOC pilot. Awesome. And actual Terry, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, uh, that's all right. How did you come to be a 119 crew? Well, back then, um, the gunner gunners were were strictly volunteer status. Uh, they took a 462 weapons mechanic like myself. Uh, I was down in Holloman Air Force Base loading bombs, rockets, and missiles on F4D Phantoms, and um, 
I always always wanted to be a pilot growing up. That didn't work out. But uh, regardless, uh, I was going to find a way into the air. So I heard about this program of gunships, and I said, I'm going to do it. And I went in I went in one day to the crew, and I told the crew, I said, I'm going down to volunteer for gunships. And uh, I said, nice knowing you so long. And away I walked. And uh, I'll cover this a little bit later on tonight in my presentation. But... One of the other crew members, John Wolf, he he says, "Hey, wait a second. He says, I'm, "You're leaving. You're doing gunships." He says, "I'm going with you. I'm going to volunteer." So John and I walked off. We're going to personnel, and sure enough, here comes Joe behind us, third guy off the crew. He says, "You guys are going, out, and you're not going without me." He says, "Oh." So the three of us went down. We volunteered for the gunships. Uh, all along, thinking we were going to get these C-130 AC-130 AC Spectres because that was the hot thing on the. Uh, uh, going at the time, but we ended up with the Gunship 3 program, which was the AC-119K. Um, three of us spent together a long time. We went to our flight training, physiological training. We went up to uh, our basic training up at Fairchild, went to our Clark Air Base jungle survival. So we went through all this training together, spent two and a half years on it. So it evolved from being a ground pounder 462 weapons mechanic to an airborne weapons mechanic, and that's how I got got involved with the 119. And Terry, you bring up an interesting um, uh, tidbit. You, you you called the 119 the gunship 3, and of course the uh, the AC-130 being the gunship that is still in service, you'd think, okay, well that must have been the ultimate progression, but um, can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be about? Sure. Um, what happened was, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but the AC-47 was being replaced at the time by gunship 2 program, which was the AC-130 Spectre. Um, and lo and behold, they found out that they had a shortage of airframes to convert from the C-130 cargo version to the AC-130 gunship version. So the Air Force found themselves in a little bit of a pickle. Now, okay, what are we going to do? Because we already promised we were going to get these AC-47s over to the South Vietnamese. So they got to looking around, and uh, they found these old C-119s that were left over, uh, left over from the Korean War and uh, found out that the— uh, Indiana Air National Guard down at Bacalar Air Force Base in uh, Columbus, Indiana, was still flying these birds, and they found 52 of them. They said it looked like a good airframe where it was good large compartment, handled the guns, handled the ammunition. So they, they took 52 of them from the Air National Guard, uh, sent them out to Fairchild Hiller, had them converted over 26 G models and 26 K models. But the gunship, the AC-130 Spectres were already in the Gunship 2 program. They were just being delayed. So then uh, that's how the AC-119 became the Gunship 3, which is actually a third program in the Gunship uh, evolution. Yeah, and the C-119 has uh, had a pretty long career by that point. I, I believe it was one of the first combat operations of Vietnam was a, was a C-119. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, these things, I mean, when you think about it, they were made back in the early 50s. Uh, and like I said, went through the Korean War and basically was calling, hauling cargo and paratroopers and everything else. And basically, they were relegated to the back burner uh, with the Air National Guard and they got uh, reborn, if you will, and uh, um, converted into the gunships. And, uh, so when they made the the, the uh, when they decided to convert them, it was supposed to, it was supposedly on a temporary basis. Uh, as soon as the 130s they found the airframes and they were going to come on board, the 119s were going to be history again. Uh, back to the boneyard, back to the Air National Guard, whatever they were going to do with them, it was going to be the end of it. But they found out that they were so effective and efficient, 
and it has a dual mission role of TIC, which was troops in contact, and also armed reconnaissance, which was flying uh, supply and interdiction on the on the Ho Chi Minh Trail throughout Laos. They were doing such a good job. The temporary aspect of it became permanent. We lasted all the way to the end of the Vietnam War through 1973. Wow. So, uh, we, so we talked about the storied airframe with the 119. And, of course, you got, if you talk about storied airframes, gosh, the C-47, um, you know, World War II, pre-World War II, when it really uh, evolved out of the fir- one of the first modern airliners. And then uh, all the stuff that it did in World War II, dropping paratroopers and logistics and everything else. Um Junior, what was it like uh, keeping these these birds in the air when you were, uh, you know, in Vietnam? These aircraft were, what, 20, 30 years old by that point? Busy. Uh, every morning, whenever we uh, went to the flight line, of course, uh, if depending on whether you were working nights or days, uh, every night we had one of our aircraft flying cap over our base. If they got called out on a uh, mission to for close air support for Army, Navy, whoever, uh, Marines, uh, we had 15 minutes to uh, scramble another bird and get him up to fly cap over your base. And uh, every morning we had to inspect them uh, totally, I mean, for uh, bullet holes and whatever. Uh, and it was not that hard to keep them flying as long as you had the parts and uh, I remember our night shift supervisor one night we needed a uh, starter for one of the uh, engines and he went down to the boneyard which is a scrap yard whatever we had a couple of C-47s down there AC-47s and he took one of the starters off of it he took and put it in his uh, truck uh a flatline truck, and here come the uh, the MPs. What are you doing? And he said, well, I'm getting a starter. We need a starter for one of our aircraft. And uh, he said, well, you can't do that. And he said, well, we don't have one. Uh, base, I, they don't have one here on base, and I've got to have one. I said, well, you just can't do it. You're going to have to order it. So he says, okay, I'll put it back. So he takes the old starter <laughs> from the – one that he had brought down there and he takes it back out there and puts it on and so he's got the good starter and he brings it over we got a starter for our engine so we did what it took to keep the aircraft up and while we were over there and you can check the stats the ac-47 did not have one mission that was aborted due to aircraft maintenance uh, that's how good a job we did, and we were very proud of what we were doing because the guys in the air counted on us. If we don't do our job, they're going down. We ended up losing 14 aircraft, 86 men anyhow, and that was way too many. But uh, those aircraft went down in combat. Now, we've lost a lot more aircraft than that. In fact, the aircraft that I crewed, it got hit with mortars one night, and it just burnt the cockpit to nothing. It just melted it. And that's one of the aircraft that was in the boneyard. Who knows? That might have been the one that he got the starter off of. I don't know. But uh, we just prided ourselves, and you go over them with a fine-tooth comb, uh, and— because we knew we had lives up there that were going to matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, 
so Junior, you were there with John, um, kind of in the uh, in the in the earlier days of the combat. Excuse me, of the conflict. Um, John, can you tell us? You, you talked a little bit about the illumination and things like that. What was a typical mission like for you um, flying the AC forty seven? Mm. By the time the uh, the uh, airplane the the uh, AC forty seven mission was shutting down, transitioning the one nineteen in country in South Vietnam. There was this other mission cranking up in northern Thailand to fly up into Laos. Uh, so the application was one airplane goes airborne at uh, dark, flies up into a holding pattern waiting for a target, which they almost always got. As soon as they launched, the second second bird went on to a hot standby. Uh, maybe that's not the right word. Anyway, as soon as the uh, airborne alert uh, Got a target. The second airplane would take off, and uh, that would cycle cycle through all night long. Uh, it wasn't Laos. It wasn't until after I was home for a couple of years did I uh, learn what was really going on, which was uh, the CIA was running a counter-revolution up there against the Pathet Lao rebels. And uh, that's, that's what our mission was, to support uh, that counter revolution. How were um, how were targets designated for you, and how did you find them? I don't know if this is AB Triple C Airborne Battlefield Command and Control uh, airplane was up running the war, and uh, they would take input from uh, a uh, fortified hamlet up there. Uh, if they came under attack, they weren't a- and they weren't able to uh, handle their aggressor then they would call for close air support. That concept, I don't think, has changed much. So fortified Hamlet under attack, can't handle it. They call for uh, close air support, and we were there close to uh, help them out. I would like to add something to that. Sure. Uh, These guys did such a good job, the pilots and all of them. Once we got on target in Vietnam, we never lost an outpost, not one. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. Yes. It is an incredible, incredible uh, they did weapon a, system. They did a great job in the air. Yeah. So, so Terry, um, you know, moving on to the, uh, the C-119, what capabilities did that aircraft bring to the table? Did that change the mission at all for, um, for you? I mean, you mentioned that you kind of had a dual mission between the close air support and the armed recon. Uh, yeah. At the, it started out, like I said, with the AC-119G Shadow. The Shadow had the same 7.62 millimeter miniguns that the AC-47 had, only it added one from three. It went to, from three to four. We still did the uh, close air support, troops in contact. Um, once in a while, they would fly into Cam- Cambodia and hit some hard targets. But if they could find the 7.62 millimeter armor-piercing rounds, which were scattered about, but... They, that, that could fire on a hard target, but mostly it was TIC, what they call a tick mission, troops in contact. If a hamlet was under trouble or a town was under trouble, a village, uh, if the good guys needed help, they'd call us in on a, on a mission. Um, but what happened was uh, they upgraded to the K model, which was the AC-119K Stinger model, and which is the one I was on 1971 and 1972. Uh, they gave the G shadows over to the South Vietnamese. The K's added, they kept the 4.7.62 millimeters, the miniguns, but they added two 20 millimeter Vulcan cannons. And what that allowed them to do is to get into the armed reconnaissance 
true uh, supply interdiction mode on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So that in- increased that that was the dual mission mode. And uh, I was a gunner. We had uh, uh, those six guns, three gun- three gunners, but we had our, our racks were filled with ammunition. Split between the 7.62 and split between the 20 millimeter, depending on what we were on a schedule. If we were going to fly the trail, obviously we'd have more 20 millimeter. But uh, that was pretty much it. How we uh, they added that. Plus they added other things for target acquisition, like like the FLIR, the forward looking infrared radar, which was which really increased it over the NAS, which was the night observation site of being a, being able to acquire different targets on the ground. Just out of curiosity, so you know, being a being a gunner on a um, on an aircraft like that, you said you came out of basically the ordnance world of of the Air Force, but it seems to me you got a lot of a lot in common uh, with um, you know folks like uh, um, uh, gun and artillery crews on the ground. Um, have you ever um, compared notes with them? Had any uh, had any kinship with them? No, it, it, we never uh, never thought of ourselves as as uh, equivalent or something similar to what they were doing on the ground. We felt what, our mission was totally different. Uh, from the time we caught the crew bust for those pre-flight briefings to pre-flight the birds on the ground before we took off to get into the air and um, repairing the guns if we had a jam or something was wrong, repairing the guns, but mostly reloading the guns as far as um, – you run run through a lot of ammunition in a short period of time when you're firing them at 6,000 rounds a minute or the 20 millimeters at 2,500 rounds a minute. You go through a lot of ammo in a short period of time. So you might have one gun off the line as one gunner was reloading. But we, we never got into um, any comparisons with the ground people. We had hmm. we had a job. We felt like no other. I mean, it was like it was crazy. Uh, you pull into a 30 degree bank in an orbit for a target and in a blackout situation, uh, dark, um, no lights, no running lights on the aircraft, no lights in the gun compartment. And you're either freezing or you're, or, or you're sweating your tail off. I mean, it was, and you got wind blowing through there. You got the gun, gun powder smoke and it's, it was a mess and it was chaos. And, you got the pilot screaming at you. I need another gun. I need another gun. And you know you're in the dark and trying to do your best. But it was the, it was a job of its own, you know. And uh, uh, we never really tried to compare it to anything else. Sure. We thought it was pretty unique. John, you got your hand up. Just to pick up on what Terry's describing, what went on in the in the back of the airplane, even in, on the old uh, AC-47, on target, it was uh, organized ballet. Everybody had a job to do, and it happened just like this. I would never call for a gun that I that I wouldn't get her. You got a gun, sir. Uh, the the guy the uh, the gunners, the loadmaster, the flight engineer. God, those guys were wonderful. I think that's the biggest thing about the platform too. Is you know, a gunship is a tank in the air, right? So just because we have some failure does not mean we are going home. We have other guns, we have other hydraulics, we have other electrics, other fire controls. Whatever we need to do to make sure those folks on the ground get home every night is going to be the plan. So uh, redundancy in extreme, and then crew work uh, and teamwork, but like you've never seen. That's what I loved about it. Yeah, and, and so so Clay and and um, you know it, it's it's interesting that you know across you know basically fifty years of history here um, you're uh, uh, you're basically saying the same thing. So so Ryan and Clay, you you um, you've flown the aircraft now, continue to fly the aircraft now. Um, 
how has has have have the capabilities of the aircraft changed significantly that it changes the mission um, at all? Are there um, different ways you employ the aircraft now that um, that that are that have kind of evolved from the way that it was being employed in Vietnam? I think the core mission is still the same, especially what we saw, you know, in the mountains of Afghanistan, very similar. Uh, Biggest thing, yeah, we've got some newer technology to do it with, which helps us, you know, we could do it a little bit tighter, a little bit, uh, you know, closer to friendlies, put the fire down and still keep them safe. Uh, But at the end of the day, it all comes down to systems experts and the crews. So there's no way a single person could run that airplane, right? So like uh, like the guys were saying, I've got a systems expert in the back with all the weapons. Lead gunner's going to let me know what's going on. If there's a malfunction, okay, we're working on the 105. You can have the 40 millimeter. The engineer knows every system on the airplane, every switch, every circuit breaker. If there's something going on, chances are he's already worked it before he even tells me that, uh, hey, we've got a problem. But how are we going to mitigate it and where are we going to go from there? Uh, the sensors have improved drastically over the years, too. That's That's been a huge improvement. Uh, it just allows us to find the targets faster. Uh, ideally, we should always find the target before it becomes a target on the friendlies, and uh, that's how we keep them safe. But, uh, yeah, mine was sort of the middle middle decades of, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. And now with Ryan, he can talk to you more about some of the, the missiles and small diameter bombs that they have on it. And, and Ryan, you're flying the, the, the newest variant, right? The uh, yep. uh, Whiskey? AC-130J. J, excuse me. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so we're... Um, Kind of in the process in AFSOC going to a pure fleet, four squadrons with all AC-130Js. The Whiskey, I think, just retired. Uh, that was the test platform for the J model. Uh, and as Clay alluded to, so now we've got the 105 and the 30 mic mic. Uh, but in addition to that, we can carry, um, we can basically carry, you know, either four Hellfires on each wing, um, four small diameter bombs, the GBU-39, uh, three different variants of that, depending on what you want to do. And then we have uh, common launch tubes in the actual door, the uh, rear door of the aircraft that can actually uh, drop the missiles or the glide uh, glide munition out the back and then strike the target. Uh, we'll laze those in. So it just adds a whole other capability. You know, I've, I've flown where uh, gun one was uh, bent, broken, uh, and then we mitigated that with a Hellfire strike. We were able to do we were able to do multi weapon engagements now where we can do a target nose target run in, strike the target, enter the orbit, and then shoot as soon as we get impact on those weapons. So the amount of firepower that we can put down in a very short amount of time is is uh, is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Now you have a lot of uh, crossover with with other weapons platforms uh, too. You know, with the with the Hellfires and the, and the bombs. You know, you're basically a little uh, mini uh, bomber up there. <laughs> in addition, yeah, they've kind of started calling us a bomb truck. We're still yeah. at the core. We're still a gunship with the capabilities of uh, anywhere from you know the Hellfire having the missile capability um, to the GBU thirty nine, where it's it can punch through a hardened uh, hardened target. Um, so our, our our capabilities and the options we have are, are very wide now, uh, just depending on what mission it is we're doing. I think the response time has always been an important part of the gunship world, too. So, you know, fighters, that, that great munitions, they they take a second to set up, right? And you got a single person working hard in that airplane. For us, we're looking at the same piece of target. We're watching them come out into a tree line with, uh, you know, perhaps bad guys. And we've got the guns briefed up. Everything's ready. We were just standing by clearance from the, the JTAC on the ground. And once they get that clearance, I've seen the weapons going off under 10 seconds. We can get rounds away. And and you've got the loiter time too to to be there for a long time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And with the J model now too, we've with the loiter time we've we've got an increase in altitude. We've got a lot more efficient, more powerful engines. Uh, let us loiter even longer than the Legacy was able to. It's actually pretty incredible uh, what we've 
able to drop our fuel burn down to and then fly higher, mitigating some of uh, the risk to the crew on top of that. Sure. So, uh, so pilots in the room. So you got very good at a uh, at nice coordinated pylon turns. Um. <laughs> Can't turn right. Uh, it's got to go left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did any Did any of you? Um, I, I guess I so 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 Ryan and Clay, you both wanted gunships. Um, John, when you were uh, when, when you you said you, you you were a little unfamiliar with the aircraft when you first got to it, were you, did you start doing pylon turns? Like, oh gosh, I hated this in pilot training. I gotta gotta do this now. No, not really. Okay, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> the the difference was going from T thirty eight to this C forty seven thing, and it, it was it was clunky to fly, and and uh, it it just uh, handled differently, but. You you pick up the feel and and uh, just make it happen. So the pylon turn wasn't a big deal, but the the big deal was putting that uh, target target reticle where you needed to put it and let it rip. So it was all it was all hand flown for you, right? The, you basically you actually had a gun sight pointing sideways, right? Yeah. What's an autopilot? Yeah. <laughs> So what for again for for the pilots what what is it like um, on the controls when those uh, when those guns fire particularly the 105s on the uh, on, on the AC 130 Yeah so on, on the H and the U you get definitely could tell when the 105s going off uh, you get a little kick on the back of the airplane uh, didn't change the firing geometry too much in my experience anyway uh, but the 25 millimeter was right up by our crew entrance door on the left side of the airplane so uh, longest burst we could do on that was about 350 rounds comes out in 11 seconds and with that much power coming out of the gun it pushes the nose to the right so you got to put a little left rudder hmm. in when you want to keep the gun on target okay that's so that's interesting so it's actually a little bit of counter rudder input rather than than a lateral displacement exactly huh. yeah. oh, that's interesting all right um why don't we go around the table and just um you know all, all of you have um experience in in uh, in combat um areas why don't we uh talk about um the the one thing that's uh, the one you know, particular mission, night, anything like that that sticks out um, in in your head. Why don't we start with you, Junior? Well, the biggest thing that sticks out in mine is the night that we got hit and uh, my aircraft got burned up, basically. And then, of course, we took the wings off of it and they took it out to the junkyard. Uh, it just burned to nothing. Uh, another night, we were getting hit. Well, I take that back. We were had outgoing. The sirens went over, off, and everybody ran to the bunker. And about 15 minutes later, they said, hey, all clear. Uh, so it was outgoing. That day, they had moved our mortar uh, launchers from the north side of the base to the south side of the base, and they were shooting across the base. So we went back to bed, just got uh, back to sleep, Sirens went off again. We run to the bunker again. And 15 minutes later, it's all clear. It was outgoing. So we go back to bed. 15, I've just barely got sleep. Sirens go off again. I said, to hell with this. I said, I ain't going to the bunker this time. So I fell asleep. And so they came back in. All the guys came back in. Skinner, what are you doing? I said, I'm sleeping. We just got hit with so many rounds. Well, sorry about that. And the good Lord was looking after me because we didn't take one there at the barracks, even though we had had, had a round once before really sprinkled our barracks good. But anyhow, 
those kind of things is what you think about is uh, knowing that at any time that the first round could get you. And that happened a few times. And we had some buddies that it happened too. But we had one guy that was supposed to go home the next day and he got uh, a mortar got him that night. So, Junior, that's a really good point. Uh, to uh, I think it's worth I think it's worth mentioning just for anybody who's unfamiliar with it. Is you know when we hear about um, like fighter pilots in Vietnam and stuff like that. I mean they're at bases hundreds of miles away in Thailand, and you were right there, um, pretty close to the line of contact. Oh yeah. In fact, we had one of our AC forty sevens flying right above our uh, our base one night, firing right outside the perimeter. I mean real close. In fact, the flare uh, parachutes was dropping right there on our uh, uh, on our barracks. I mean, they were dropping right there. That's how close there was. We had two guys get on base once, and they tried to find them, and they couldn't find them. So they went through with the uh, helicopters and the gunner. He just peppered that field good, and then they went in with dogs, and they found them out there in the field dead, and they were right across the street from our barracks. And... Uh, those kind of things you think about, and uh, it's, you know, hey, you just have to be glad that you were on the ground and not up in the air where they shoot at. I don't know if anybody knows the story of John Levito. If you don't, he was the youngest enlisted airman ever to receive the Medal of Honor. They took a round in the right wing one night, a mortar. When that aircraft hit the ground, it had 3,000 holes in it. John was wounded. But they had a uh, flare hooked up, ready to dispense. And whenever that mortar hit, it rocked the aircraft, and that flare come loose. Now you got a live flare ready to ignite. And John crawled around and kicked it out the door just before it ignited, and uh, the pilot uh, put him in for a Medal of Honor, and he received it. And uh, But that's what happens in the air. And these guys, whether you're the AC-130s or the – uh, 47s or the AC-119s, when you get up in the air, I mean, there's always that capability that you never know. Yeah. You just don't know. Absolutely. John, how about you? I think I said earlier, uh, our intel was pretty good about keeping uh, uh, AAA uh, mapped up uh, up in northern Laos. <clears throat> and it worked really well, except when it didn't. So it didn't one night when uh, we were... Uh, going in to support a uh, hot uh, uh, fortified hamlet and uh, we can see we can see in the the fight ahead of us as we approach the target exchange a tracer fire and we we thought that uh, the uh, hostile fire was uh, some kind of uh, automatic weapon field piece so we uh, uh, head for it roll in on it and when we roll in he traverses north uh, up to us. So, short story, it wasn't a field piece. It was a 23-millimeter anti-aircraft anti uh, uh, vehicle. Yeah. And uh, uh, the I can still see the tracers coming through our flight path, but but uh, I, I knew I knew that was it. We we had had it. In fact, I even asked the guys in the back. I said, "Hey, have we taken a hit?" No, sir, we're good. Check again, because I just knew we'd been hit, uh, but we were not. And uh, so we, uh, uh, to end that, that little story, 
maneuvered real quick back, put uh, three guns up fast, and uh, neutralized the uh, the vehicle. But uh, it was it was just that close. We should have we should have lost it. We didn't. Why don't we uh, stick with Vietnam uh, f- uh, for one more second here? So Terry, how about you? Well. I thought I, I wrote to, we our crew rotated between three different bases. One the Confinon Air Base in Thailand, went to Da Nang Air Base in North Vietnam, not North but Vietnam, and Benoit in South in the southern part of Vietnam. Uh, my worst experiences were actually at Da Nang on the ground. <laughs> Get uh, with incoming 122 millimeter rockets. I would rather be in the air than on the ground. Put it that way. So that's just opposite of what Junior was talking about. <laughs> at least I. Uh, one of the, we had three gunners on our on our crew. Two gunners would work guns during a combat mission. One gunner was assigned in the left rear door as a scanner, picking out AAA that was being fired at you from the ground, relaying that information to the pilot and co-pilot, giving them directions, locations, if a threat, no threat, whatever. But being a scanner, which I did quite often, uh, we were night missions. You could pick up the ground flashes. Ground flash would lead your eyes to that, and then you could be sure that Tracer would be following that up, and you can assess it whether it was a threat or no threat. Relay that information to the pilot to break right, break left, or if we had to evade it. But the fact that we were flying night, night missions, aircraft painted totally black in blackout condition, you could see the Tracer. You could follow the Tracer, and you could determine whether or not it was a threat or not. We were flying out of Benoit one day, one time, and we had a little hamlet down there called Anlock. Anlock was, uh, this was during Tet of 72. I don't know if you know, but there was a Tet of 72, mm-hmm. just like 68. But Anlock was getting overrun, and they decided to run our stingers over there 24 hours a day. Daylight missions. Big black airplane, low altitude, slow, pretty blue sky behind you. It didn't work. So I'm, in a, I'm scanning in the left-hand door. We're in a firing orbit over Anlock, and I cannot see any gun flashes coming because it was daylight. Subsequently, I couldn't see any AAA coming up at us because it was masked in the daylight. It was all over us. I'm calling to the pilot. Co-pilot saying it's going right by his window. Pilot saying it's right in my eyeballs. I said, I can't call a break. I can't see it. The first time I could hear it or see it, it was as, as it was going by. You could hear it crackling. It's a 23 millimeter. I know it was a quad 23 millimeter, high velocity, a lot of rounds. Couldn't call it. Long story short, we finished our target. We pulled off target, exited RTB to Benoit. And you always have a, somebody coming in. You're leaving, somebody's coming in. And Stinger 41 was coming in. And I still remember to this day, the navigator, navigators communicating and our navigator telling them what we had, what we were up against. And it was, it was accurate uh, and, uh, and a, lot of, a lot of gunfire, a lot of AAA. They said, okay, but by the time we got to Benoit, Stinger 41 had been shot down. Oh, my gosh. Um, they lost three crew members. Seven were rescued on a SAR mission. Uh, Terry Courtney, uh, Captain Terry Courtney or Stinger 41, Stayed with the plane until all seven, all the guys got out of the aircraft. He pretty much flew it into the ground and was re- received the Air Force Cross. Uh, to this day, I don't know how we got out of that situation. It was probably more of a miracle than it was 
expertise or uh, it was more luck than anything. And so to this day, that, that's the one mission that sticks out in my mind. Well, Clay, do you want to go next? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, I wouldn't say necessarily one mission, but uh, the summer of 2017 in Afghanistan was a pretty busy summer for us. Like the guys mentioned with the attacks on base, you know, the Taliban must have known that we went to midnight chow around midnight because they would always attack about that point and <laughs> ruin chow for everybody. Uh, but as far as flying goes, uh, shooting almost every other day, uh, we started to dub ourselves the Danger Close crew. So Danger Close is a term we use in Troops in Contact when the rounds are going to be very close to friendlies. Uh, and it felt like more engagements were Danger Close for us that summer than were not Danger Close. I think the uh, closest for us was about 14 meters between bad guys and good guys. So... Uh, that being said, what I remember most is the teamwork. Uh, I was always blessed to have great crews. So I know some people have different experiences, but for me, I must have lucked out because I always had amazing crews and kept me safe, got the job done, got us home every time. Um, also worked with great Apache crews. You know, some of those missions where we were tag teaming, looking for the bad guys together, knocking them out before they could hit the good guys uh, and really getting after it. So that was great. I think, you know, instead of just one mission, it'd probably be the phone calls we'll get from some of the special operators. And usually it's a, it's a grateful phone call saying, hey, thanks for getting me home so I can see my kid grow up. And uh, that, that means the most to me. Amen. Yeah. Especially the Brits. Yep. How about you, Ryan? Um, I guess the one that kind of sticks out was uh, we're on an interdiction mission. Uh, one night in the J model, and we're tasked with um, basically uh, coalition force checkpoint protection at that point. Uh, we're flying flying around, um, end up seeing, you know, we're wearing MBGs, so everything during low alum nights sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, looking out, and all of a sudden I see just a ton of tracer fire coming out of what I assume is a friendly checkpoint. And then I see uh, another checkpoint shooting towards that checkpoint. And we're, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 miles away. I'm like, what is going on? You know, two checkpoints shooting at each other. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, as we get in closer, we come to find out, you know, we can see um, the Taliban had about 20 people, 20 to 30, you know, fighters trying to overrun this one checkpoint uh, with maybe four or five guys in it. Uh, so we get overhead and we get, you know, clearance immediately uh, to shoot and, you know, they end up taking out 15, 20 of those guys. But what I do remember was vividly is just trying to piece together how, what is going on? Why are two checkpoints shooting at each other? And what ultimately ended up happening is the one checkpoint was shooting at the other checkpoint to try to shoot the fighters from coming over the wall of that other checkpoint. Wow. So it's almost like out of Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? Like just yeah. a wave of guys trying to overrun these checkpoints. Um so, you know, had we not been there, there's there's no way they would have probably made it. But, you know, we ended up getting there and we took out a ton of those guys and, you know, had saved, uh, helped out the uh, coalition forces, helped uh, uh, keep that stability for that time. That's incredible. And and it's just, you know, that's where, like, you know, kind of Clay's talking about all these other gentlemen have talked about. It. It's using your crew um, to figure out, you know, I'm talking to the guys in the back who are, you know, the pilot, we've got the big picture what's going on. Those two sensors, they're kind of looking through that soda straw, but have that much tighter field of view on what's going on. Um, and then that, all the crew coordination that then takes place coming in from 30 miles away to into a gun orbit, immediately putting rounds down. Um, it, it comes quick, but we were able to make it work. Wow. Ryan and Clay, um, uh, one thing Chris mentioned to me last night was the uh, um, the fact that, uh, is, is it that your tactical call signs are um, are named after the uh, all of the gunships that have come before you, or um, uh, I mean, are the home station call signs is, is that, that kind of yeah. what you're getting at? So yeah, yeah, he mentioned that that they use Spooky and Stinger and yep. and and all the 
Yes. Right. That's what was neat. I, I loved it because, you know, being part of Spectre, you know, there was a generational legacy there that was awesome. And then Spooky, yeah. you know, to have it come from the AC-47 brethren before us was awesome. And uh, it kind of went back. We had an AC-47 veteran visit the squadron once, and they said, you know, these crews are the last of the B-17 crews. And when you think about it, between the gunners and the navigators and the pilots and the engineers and having to work together to get the job done. And as the grandson of a B-17 gunner, you know, I, I'm just very lucky to be a part of it. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And, and for the Vietnam guys here, I mean, um, uh, how does it feel that, you know, the legacy that you guys started is is continuing on today in such an important role? I, I think it feels great. And I would like to uh, add something to what Clay said there about being thanked. I wear my spooky cap about everywhere I go. And I cannot tell you the number of people that have sent emails and walked up to me and thanked me for saving their life. I said, I didn't. The guys in the air did. Of course, I kept the guys in the air. Yes, you did. And it's like one of the pilots said, someone uh, looked at him one day and said, you're a pilot. You're, you associate with the ground crew? He said, we're all brothers. He said, it took us all to do it. If it hadn't been for him, I might not have been here. And so it took the whole crew, like Clay and Ryan said, I mean, you got navigators, gunners, loadmasters, engineers. They all had to work together and they had to know their uh, job or, hey, you're not coming home. But yet they came home. Uh, on the lighter side, too, gunners are pretty well-known pranksters. So with Terry sitting next to me, I'm not sure what's about to happen. <laughs> Watch it. Watch it. <laughs> Break left. <laughs> Break right. Uh, as far as I'd like to comment on that, uh, you know, it, it is a brotherhood. And I think it's different when you're flying the, the, the fixed wing gunships. I don't know the legacy of it all. I mean, I told these guys earlier, I said, you got two guys on my left, two guys on my right. I'm in the middle. I feel like I got I have legends that I'm dealing with here on either side of me. But uh we're all we're all one group. It's like Amen. there is no difference. And you're right. And I, to expound on uh, Junior's comment, for God's sake, we were flying antiquated prehistoric aircraft that were left over from Korea. And these guys were these guys on the ground, the crew chiefs and the ground crew. They were putting these things together with tie wire and duct tape. For God's sake, <laughs> and. Uh, it brought me home 120 on 120 missions. It brought me home, and it's because of those guys on the ground that brought me home. Now we obviously we had a 10 man crew, and we were coordinated too. And, and we I was on a hard crew, so we all knew our jobs. We trusted each other and everything else. But it took not only the the crew in the air, but it took the ground crew also and everybody else. So, but it just it just creates a camaraderie that doesn't happen. When you're working personnel and handing out paychecks or something, is is different. It it has a different feel to it and a different look to it. And to this day, we still have our reunions every year and get together and and talk to people and switch challenge coins from the different groups here. But it just it's a different feel. And to follow up on that, there's no one here except these five guys that you can talk to and they'll understand what you're talking about because we've all five been through it and you can't explain that to anyone else yeah there's an expression that these guys have heard but uh 
if you've if you've been there, you can't explain it. If you haven't been there, you can't understand it. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, definitely feel that <laughs> absolutely. Well, folks, I um I I. I uh, uh, I, I hate that we're, we're, we've we've already used up our uh, our, our uh, almost hour here uh, uh, talking, and, and it is uh, it is time to wrap up the episode. But uh, I just want to say uh, it's it, this has been really special. This has been a very memorable podcast for me. Not not the least of which because I've been flying it solo with you guys. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's been an absolute honor to have uh, all of you guys here uh, in the room. Um, it it uh, everything that you've done, you, you've you've been through so much. Uh, so much to your uh, rendered so much service to our country through uh, all of its conflicts over the you know past uh, fifty years, and I just want to say thank you from from the A family, from our listenership, uh, from everybody, and from myself, of course. Um, it's it's been so wonderful uh, to talk to you all, all of you guys, and hear your stories, and and uh, and really feel this kinship that you all have uh, together. It's uh, it's a special part of military aviation. It's a very uh, very um, specialized part of military aviation, uh, and um, and you know you've all written a page in in aviation history through the work that you've done. So the um, uh, I guess to wrap up the show, the uh, I just want to go through a couple of credits here. The uh, the the Chris Henry uh, obviously uh, set this set all this up, set me up with uh, with you guys, and set up this incredible panel. Um, this is part of our EAA Museum Speaker Series. Uh, so uh, Chris will be back tonight to uh, to moderate uh, a what I'm sure will be an incredible evening um, with the five of you, um, with uh, with uh, some of your spouses who are here and friends and family of uh, EAA here in the Oshkosh area. As we say, um, um, every time that we have a speaker series uh, here in, in town um, check the check the schedules um, if you're anywhere in the upper Midwest or even beyond it is absolutely worth a trip out to Oshkosh Chris puts together an incredible um, uh, uh, series of talks every month other than uh, obviously the end of July we're a little busy uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but this is a, 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 an amazing uh, program that the museum puts on so uh, Chris does our scheduling uh, Rob Molash is, uh, is running our board today uh, Scott Geese does uh, does our post production work, and then our marketing and publications team handle uh, all of the uh, all, all of the distribution and uh, and promotion of the podcast to keep us on the air. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Always leave a review. Um, any uh, any feedback at all is, is always welcome. Feedback at eaa.org. Um, and uh, until next time, we'll catch you when you are cleared to land on the green dot. Mm-hmm.